0: Good morning, everyone. I hope that now that we've had that big breakfast, we aren't all falling asleep, right? I'll try to keep things moving along, try to keep you awake a little bit this morning. I entitled my sermon this morning, Father Abraham, and when I did that, I thought, oh man, that just brings to mind a song, and maybe you're, you're already with me on this one, right? VBS, Awana, Father Abraham, right hand, left hand, etc., Yeah. I'm not going to do that this morning, (laughs) for a lot of reasons, yeah, yeah, right, but we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 this morning, we're going to be kind of picking up where we left off before the advent, before Christmas season, jumping into chapter 4 of of Romans and then just continuing our, our trip through Romans, and I just want you to know every chapter in Romans is so full of stuff, stuff, there's a good theological term that I feel like every time I preach on Romans, I'm just kind of giving you a surface shot. I'm giving you my look, what I see. This could be preached 10 times and it would probably look a little different every time preached, because that's the book of Romans. It's so full of amazing theology and truth about who God is and how much He loves us. But I think it's such a central book and that's why I wanted to go through the book of Romans together as a church. So. Romans one, the theme verse. Uh, you'll probably learn this one as we go through Romans. Romans one sixteen and seventeen. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the theme of Romans the righteousness of God, the gospel. And this gospel is all about faith from the very beginning, from first to last, from where it begins to where it ends. Every day as I walk with the Lord, it's about faith. It doesn't just start with faith, it continues with faith. And it's important to keep that in mind as we go through this book. So Paul took us then into saying, okay, I want you to understand how to be right with God, but we gotta deal with something first, and that is the wrath of God. That is, the truth of the matter is we're not right with God on our own. And so in chapter one he talked about the Gentile people who maybe just turned their back on God. God revealed himself very plainly to them in creation, in conscience, but they turned their back and they suppressed the truth and so God gave them over to all kinds of sin. And you can read the story in chapter one, it's a pretty dark story, about how mankind on his own, when they turn their back on God, it's, it's not a pretty picture. But then he turns the page in chapter 2 and he says, be careful now, you Jewish people, you religious, moralistic people. Yeah, you're following the law, you're trying to please God on your own, but the problem is you're falling short too. Because the very thing that you're pointing your finger at, for them, you're, you're doing and what Paul wants us to understand in chapter 3 of Romans is, look, we all fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinful. We are all deserving of God's wrath. So there's the issue. So what's the good news, okay? The good news is God has done something about that. God has done something. Look at Romans 3:21 and 22. Look what it says there. Here's what God has done. It says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. And then in 328, he says, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul says there's good news, but it comes through faith. And I wanted to put this up here, that. Definition of terms that Paul uses, because there's some big words that appear in the book of Romans. One of them is justification. What does that term mean? When Paul uses that word, what is he talking about? Here's one of the definitions that I came across. And I think it's the most complete one it's an act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous. Righteous meaning in right standing, righteous meaning innocent of sin. He declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. So there's some things I want to point out about that before we move into chapter four. Number one, justification is an act, not a process. It's a one-time act where God, when we put our faith in Him, He declared us righteous. We are in right standing with God. There's no degrees of justification. In other words, I'm not more justified than you and you're not more justified than I am. We are all on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We all stand before God on that basis. Therefore, we are all on the same level in regards to justification. So, sometimes we confuse justification with another term that we'll get into later on in the book of Revelation, and that is sanctification. That is the work of God in our lives to make us more and more like Christ. It's that working through my weaknesses, my sin that still hangs around, working through me to make me more and more like Christ. Now, that's a process. Justification is a one-time act, declaration of God. Sanctification is this process it's lifelong of making me more and more like Him and coming to terms with sin and conquering sin in my life. God does this, not man. This is an act of God. We are saved by God's grace. Through faith, and I want you to hear that, we're saved by God's grace. That is the source. That is the power of our justification. But it comes through faith, and that's our part. We have to step out and receive what God offers us. But it's because of him and his grace in our life it's his it's the power of god Romans 1 16 and 7 to the unto salvation to those who believe right it's so god is the one who reaches out to us and we reach out and receive the gift and that is our part and that's the faith justification does not mean that god makes us righteous but that he declares us righteous justification is a legal term it's god as judge declaring us not guilty. God is, as a judge, acquitting us of all the charges that could be brought against us because of our sin. That's what justification is. He declares that to be true. Now the reality is, you know me, I know you, we're not perfect, right? So it's not that we're made righteous, we're declared to be so because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. When God looks at us, he sees his son, that's the basis of our justification. It's not, by any means, the fact that I'm perfect, the fact that I've got this all figured out, and none of us do. We're declared righteous because of the finished work of him. Second Corinthians 5.21 is one of my favorite, you're not supposed to have favorite verses and books, okay? I do. My favorite book is Second Corinthians, and my favorite chapter in that book is chapter five. Here's one verse that comes out of Second Corinthians 5. It's verse 21. Simply says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So there's the one side of what God did made Christ to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus, the perfect Son of God, to be sin, to take our sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ took on our sin, we take on the righteousness of Christ. That is called the great exchange. And there is no greater exchange in this world than that. When we trust God, we receive the righteousness of Christ. That is tremendous. Our sins are put on him and taken away. Justification illustrated. This is chapter 4. Paul wants them to understand that it's by faith that you're justified. It's not by works of the law. It's not by earning favor with God. And so he's going to use an illustration. And that illustration is the person of Abraham and a little bit of David. And we'll talk about that. But he starts, the main focus of this chapter is Father Abraham. You know, illustrations are great. They use familiar, things that are familiar to us maybe to teach things that are new. And this is what Paul's doing. Abraham would have been well understood by the Jewish, especially those of the Jewish faith, but he's going to teach them this newer concept, this idea of faith alone. Charles Spurgeon once said, a sermon is a house in which the windows of illustration allow light to fill the darkness. I love that. Sermons sometimes can be kind of dark because you know we're presenting all these things and you're, you're out there going, what in the world is he talking about? Have you ever been in that situation? Illustrations... Shed light. Illustrations bring light into that. And so Paul is going to use an illustration, the life of Abraham and his testimony, to shed some light. So let's read the first three verses of chapter 4 just to kind of get us started. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? What is this matter that he's referring to? Go back up to verse 28 of chapter 3. The matter is that Paul says we maintain a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's the matter that he's referring to. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? That's a great way to to talk about anything, isn't it? What What does God's word say about this? And here's the quote, and Jeff Galt read this this morning. This comes from Genesis chapter 15. This is the second time where God is reaffirming his covenant with Abraham. Here's what he said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 verse six. So why, does God, why is Paul picking out Abraham? Uh, real quickly, a couple things to think about. Number one, he's the father of both Jews and Gentiles. And he's gonna talk about that later on in this chapter. He's the father of us all. Father Abraham had many sons, you know, yeah. and ongoing. The idea is by faith, he's not just the Jewish father and he was that, but he became the father of anyone who walks by faith, anyone who trusts God and claims promises of God. So he applies to all people and part of what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is he wants the Gentiles and the Jews to understand we're together on this. This is the church of Christ and that's going to be a theme throughout the book of Romans came to the gospel came to the Jews first yeah but also to the Gentiles Paul says in Romans 1 16 and 17 so he he wants to bring those two together i think Paul also wants to show that this justification by faith is not a new thing with him he's not saying look this isn't something that i kind of dreamed up and it's this new thing and you're looking at me going what are you talking about i want to go back to early history Abraham, and show that it was true back then, and it was always been true of God. God asks us to walk by faith. It's not always about works. In fact, it didn't start out that way for sure. It was always about faith. The Jews of Paul's days considered Abraham as a primary example of justification by works. Turn over to James 2, it's interesting. James two twenty one through 24. This is why Martin Luther the great reformer struggled with the book of James because he couldn't reconcile at first the difference between James' writing and Paul. In his mind they were opposite of each other and they were contradictory to each other. He came to understand later on that that was not the case but listen to what James says about Abraham. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. The scripture will fulfill that says, and he's gonna quote the same verse that Paul quotes in Romans four. In quotes, Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person's considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. What? What is going on, James? Wait a minute. Paul's over here saying you're justified by faith alone. You're over here saying a person is justified by what they do, not by faith alone. What what gives? I think it's important to understand they were writing from different viewpoints, each one. Paul was saying when it comes to our standing with God, it's faith alone. He's talking about where it starts. The root of our relationship with God, it's first and foremost we need to understand it's by faith alone. It's not by what we do to please God, and that's in God's view. James says, yes, that's true, he agrees. However, faith without works is incomplete. You need more than, you can talk faith all you want. I can say I have faith, but we need to show faith. So James is arguing, look, it starts with faith, but it's completed with works, evidence. You need evidence of your faith because people are looking on. So he's writing from the standpoint of people around you looking at your faith, and you're talking about faith. Show me. And faith works itself out in works, he says. It's a completeness, it's a maturity process. So Paul's talking about the means of salvation, the root. James is talking about the evidence of salvation, the fruit of our salvation should be works. So there's not a disagreement, there's really a completed picture that the two bring together. Look at what we have, starting in verse four. Paul is gonna show here that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. He says in verse four of chapter four, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing. He's gonna bring David in as a second witness. Listen to what David says, okay? We have Abraham, but even David agreed, and here's what David said in the book of Psalm, chapter 32, when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will, will never count against them. So Paul, in verses 1 through 5, we're talking about this idea that it's, it's about faith. It's not about works. This word credited, it's going to appear 11 times in this chapter, over and over, this idea of credited. It's a bookkeeping term, meaning to credit one's account, to make a deposit. Every Monday morning, Jackie Cook is in her office taking the money that was given on Sunday and depositing it to our church account in the bank. That's important to do. The word there, so what Paul's saying is look, because Abraham believed God, God credited his account with righteousness. It was like it was put in the bank. Now he's gonna be clear here, this is not about a wage. Verses four and five talk about that. If it's a wage, it's something I deserve. It's something I've earned. It's something that my employer is kind of indebted to me to give, correct? But if it's a gift, then all I can do is receive it and say thank you. And that's what God's grace is in our life. Many of you have the direct deposit now with your, you know, maybe you have a payroll services where you work or your paycheck goes directly into the bank. Now, if, say, a month went along and there was no direct deposit into my account, I would probably check with Jackie and say, you know, what's up? What's going on? Or if there was, it was less than what my salary usually was, I'd be going, and I would have a right to, because you know, it's a wage, I, I worked for this, I earned this, I deserve this, right? And so I would have a right to go, what's going on? This isn't, this isn't good. But if I went to my account one day, I just went online, checked my account, and all of a sudden there's just this deposit of three grand in my account with no explanation. What what could I do there? All I could do is say thanks. I would try to find out maybe where it came from so I could say thanks to that person, but that's a gift. And what God has done is he's credited us. Again, that word appears 11 times throughout this chapter. He's credited to our account his righteousness by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, by what he did. Paul says in verse five, God who justifies the ungodly. Now we understand that today because we understand grace and the gospel. But in Paul's time, people would have heard that phrase and went, wait a minute. God, the holy, righteous, judge, God, is justifying the ungodly? That wouldn't have worked for them. It would have been oxymoron in a sense. Exodus 23, 7, have nothing to do with a false charge. Do not put an innocent or honest person to death. And then God says this, I will not acquit the guilty. I will not acquit the sinner, someone who sinned, God says. I'm just, I'm holy, sin will not stand with me. So this would have been a statement that would have stood out to them. But what Paul has been teaching them is up in chapter 3, He says God is just and he's the justifier of the ungodly. It's only by grace that God can be both those things. He can be just and holy and hold a standard up here of perfection and sinlessness. On the other hand, allow a way to justify the ungodly, the sinner. It's by faith, it's not by works. Psalm 32, 1 and 2, Donna, if you would shoot that up. This is the quote that Paul uses from David. Now, he brings David in as a second witness. In Jewish mind, in a court of law, you would bring, you had to have a, at least two witnesses to kind of verify a statement. And so what Paul's doing, is he says, we got Abraham, but I'm going to bring in David along with him to, to make sure that this is taken care of. And he quotes this, this couple of verses out of Psalm 32. And in these verses, I want you to see, I'll just read this, and then I want you to see there's three definitions of forgiveness in this passage. And in your note-taker, I've kind of noted those. So here's the passage. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So I want to point out up there three different ways that sin is defined in this passage. Number one, the word forgiven. The Hebrew word back then and then the Greek word as it's brought into the New Testament is this idea of sending away, to send away. To me when I hear that word and I think probably in Paul's mind is go back into Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. There was a lot going on when God established the Day of Atonement but one of the things he did with the people of Israel is he had them pick out from amongst the people of Israel two male goats. And then they would just cast lots. One of them would be allowed to live. One of them would be sacrificed. Okay, so if if I were the goat, I would hope for, you know, good luck with the lot thing. I would want to be the one alive. But here's the way it worked. To send away. Maybe you've heard this term, we use it in our culture, but the idea of a scapegoat. What would happen was, the high priest would come up to that one goat and he would put in a sense and pray the sins of the people of Israel onto that animal. Then that animal would be taken out into the wilderness and just let go. The idea was sending out, sending away sin from the people of Israel. It's a beautiful illustration. That scapegoat then would be out in the wilderness away from the camp, away from the people of Israel. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has removed our sin from us. There's that idea there. So one definition that comes from this is the idea that our sins are sent away. They're gone. They're separated from us. It's like that scapegoat that's out there. But there's also this idea of covering. David says, Whose sins are covered. That word is atonement, and on the day of atonement, the second goat, the male goat that lost the lots, would be the one to be sacrificed. And the blood from that goat would be sprinkled on the seat of atonement in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. This idea of covering. In the Old Testament, the people knew that their sins could be covered by the blood of a sacrifice. Covered, but not dealt with totally. Kind of a temporary covering. What that was doing was pointing ahead to the day when the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. In fact, up in chapter three, verse 25, it says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, a covering, through the shedding of His blood, So there's that atonement idea, the covering. So we have this idea of sending away, covering. And then he says, not counting against. He does not count against those, the sins. It's kind of like Abraham over here, God credited him, counted his righteousness. So we have a positive example of what God has done. He gave him something that he didn't deserve. Over here with David, his sin something he deserves, God doesn't count that. He takes it away. It's like God in his record book has blotted it out. There's a beautiful verse in Isaiah that talks about the fact that God has blotted out our sins and he remembers them no more. So he doesn't doesn't count our sins. With Abraham, he counts, he reckons, he, he gives him credit for righteousness With David, he doesn't credit him with sin. He takes it away. So it's a beautiful opposite example. So we see that justification is by faith, not works. We also see, starting in verse 9, justification is by grace, not by law and circumcision. Now let me read these verses, starting in verse 9. It says, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Who is this for? Jews? or Gentiles? Paul's asking. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Good question. Where does circumcision fit here in this idea of being credited? Paul answers it for us right here. He says it was not after but before that Abraham was credited. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to, to them. So to the Gentiles, he was credited with the righteousness before he was, he was circumcised. He's your father because he acted in faith. But he doesn't stop there. He says in verse 12, he is also father of the circumcised, the Jews, who not only are circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it's good that he kind of summarizes this for us. Here's what he says. The promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but to also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. It's by grace. Circumcision did not play a role here. In fact, he goes back and he goes, think of the story of Abraham. In chapter 15, when he was credited with righteousness, It wasn't until chapter 17 that God brought this sign, this seal of circumcision, about 14 years later. So it was while he was still uncircumcised, all that God asked at that point was faith. I want you to trust me, Abraham. I'm gonna make of you a great nation. Your descendants will be like the stars of the sky. There's that beautiful story in chapter 15. Abraham was starting to waver in his faith a little bit. So God came a second time and confirmed His covenant with him. He's going to do it one more time in chapter 17. But he says, Abraham, I'm with you. I want you to just go out and look at the stars and I want you to know and see your descendants are going to be like that. Too many to count. Problem is, Abraham had to wait a little bit, right? It wasn't true at that point. So, circumcision did not have anything to do with this. Abraham came before Moses in the law. So faith precedes the law. Um, I think sometimes in our minds when you read the Bible, we have the Old Testament here, New Testament here. The Old Testament was about the law. The New Testament about grace. The law didn't work, so God came up with plan B, his grace. And I want you to know that's not an accurate way to look at God's word. God's plan has always been grace through faith from the very beginning. Yes, law came about. Really, there's a lot of reasons why the law was instituted. One of them was to show just how messed up people are. The fact that we cannot cannot do this on our own. We're gonna fail. We're gonna fall short. And then grace with the coming of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't plan B. It was God's plan all along. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20. This is a great reminder. It just says this. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. Okay, So he's speaking and he says you know how you were redeemed. It was through the blood of Christ. But listen what he says in verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. This was all part of God's plan before the creation of the world. This was not plan B. The law really didn't work, and so we got to figure something else out. No. Before the creation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had a plan in place long before. And it, but it's been revealed in these last days, for your sake, more recently. It's good to keep that in mind. Circumcision back then was an outward sign of an inward reality. It was something that God asked them to do, that kind of marked them as His. It was an identifier. It's important to know that external observances can never save the lost sinner. Things that we do externally cannot save us. Again, it's an internal work of God that saves us. In verse 11, it calls circumcision a sign and a seal. Sign, something that Abraham did that kind of marked him as set apart to God, Again, the sign of something that happened inward. And Paul talked about that in chapter 2 and 3, this idea that circumcision really is of the heart. It's of what's going on in your heart, not just of the exterior body. Today's equivalent would be baptism. It's an outward sign, a visible sign of an inward reality. The fact is I have received the Lord as my Savior. I am His. Baptism is I'm being identified with Him in public. Visible illustration of something that's true in my life and identification with the people of God, just as circumcision was back in the Old Testament, identification with the people of God. The cool thing is, if you think about it, baptism is for everyone, male and female. Circumcision, obviously, for male only. In the New Testament, the sign is for all. It's also a seal. It's a reminder that God had promised something. He was going to follow through on it. The equivalent today would be the Holy Spirit. It speaks of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1, 16 and 17. The Holy Spirit is our seal of redemption. The fact that God has promised us eternal life, He's going to follow through on His promise. And He's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal in our hearts, as a reminder of that promise. He's not going to break it. It's a... his promise, it's real. So, Abraham was justified by resurrection power, not human effort. We're going to see this in verses 17 through 25. Let me just finish off this chapter. Again, there's so much here, it's like I'm, I'm cruising through, but here's the rest of the chapter. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In chapter 17, after God instituted circumcision with Abram, He changed his name to Abraham. He went from being exalted father to father of many nations. So in both of those names, if you think about it, there's this picture of being father which kind of insinuates that you have children and up to that point he still did not have anyone except by chapter 17 they had Ishmael. (laughs) Another story, right? By natural means, and you know that story, how they went about doing that, he did have a son, but not through him and Sarah. God also changed Sarah's name, Sarai, meaning princess, to Sarah, which means mother of many nations. So again, that promise that I will bless you, I'll make your name great, you'll be a father of many nations, carried on to Sarah also. So there was the name change. He is our Father in the sight of God in whom we believe, the God who gives life to the dead, who calls into being things that were not. Again, now, listen to this phrase. It sounds weird, but here's what it says, verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. That's kind of a weird statement. And so became the Father of many nations, just as it had been said to him So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, good reason to think that, right? 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief. He regarded the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So, God's resurrection power versus human ability or human effort, for sure. Paul, in verse 17, Paul saw this situation, this rejuvenation of Abraham and Sarah's body, the ability to bear a son. He saw this as a picture of God who, in verse 17, he says, God can raise the dead. I know that to be true of God. And God can create something from nothing. So, verse 18 says, Against all hope, there was no physical reason whatsoever to believe that Abraham and Sarah could have a son. If you just looked at it from a physical level, it was, it isn't going to happen. It went against all of our hope. But I love the statement that says, Abraham in hope, he believed. There's faith. Faith is understanding my situation, against all hope, but understanding God. And verse 21 says he believed that God was gonna carry through on his promise. It wasn't the situation that he had hope in, it was God. And knowing who God is and that God had promised and God would come through, God would deliver. And that's why he had this hope. It was just this beautiful story. One of, my, one of the commentaries I read had this. It says, one reason why God delayed nearly 25 years in bringing about the birth of Isaac. That 25 years, by the way, is from Genesis 12 where God first said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you, etc., to the point where Isaac was born. There was a period of 25 years. That's a long, long time. Even if you live as long as Abraham, that's a long time. Why did he delay 25 years? To permit their natural strength to decline and then disappear. At the ages of 89 for Sarah, 99 for Abraham, both were dead in relationship to reproduction. Hebrews 11:12 12 tells us this. It says, from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's this idea that physically, reproductively, they're dead. And I think there's a story there of the gospel. Ephesians 2, the last PowerPoint slide up there. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7 As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It doesn't end there. This is good. <laughs> we were pretty much dead, deserving of wrath, okay? But, but... Verse 4 is beautiful. Because of his great love. Why? Because of God's grace. Because of his great love for his God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in sin and transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We were dead. Abraham and Sarah, as good as dead. But we're dealing with a God who can raise us to life. We're dealing with a God who can overcome death. That's true of Abraham and Sarah. That's true of us. This is the gospel. We were dead in our sin and transgressions, but he made us alive in Christ. We trust him because he's able to do that in our lives. It's a work of God. It's by his grace through faith that we can experience that. Just like Abraham, we're we're justified by faith, not works. We can't earn it with God. Please don't try. Trust. Trust God and His promises. That's what He wants. Don't try to earn it. It does not work. Doesn't mean good works are invaluable because they're very valuable. But allow God to work through you. We are not we're saved by God's grace alone. Not by works of the law, not by any other means that we might come up with. We're saved by the resurrection power of Christ, not human effort. These are true of Abraham and Sarah back in the day. They're so true of us today. Look at what verse 23 and 24 says here. And this is true of every passage that I read, and I hope the words it was credited to him, in quotes, were written not for him alone. It was true of Abraham. But guess what? There's something bigger here than just that. Look what he says in verse 24. But also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. You know, that was written for Abraham. It was written back in the day in Paul's time, but it's written for us. That's called application. Everything written here applies to us, So what are some applications? You, you know, the Holy Spirit gives applications to us when you read the Word of God, but sometimes as a pastor, I can give some too. Here's a couple things to think about. On your note taker, I just put wobbly-legged faith. What in the world am I talking about there? Um, I was thinking about this in the story. In verses 19 and 20, it says, without weakening in his faith, and then in verse 20, it says, Abraham did not waver through unbelief. That's the big picture of the story of Abraham and Sarah. We know the whole story of Abraham and Sarah. They were a lot like us. Twice, Abraham lied about Sarah being his sister, which was half true, another story. But he kind of lied about that to save his hide, right? Two different instances. Then there was the whole Sarah saying, hey, why don't you sleep with my handmaid, our servant, and have a child because it's not gonna happen. There was, talk about no faith, right? Then there was the couple times, Abraham first, in chapter 17 of Genesis, where he laughed. God said, you're gonna have a child, and it was like, Pff. And he literally started laughing at God. And then later on, I think it's the next chapter, 18, when the angels appear, it's Sarah then who gets the laughter, and hence the name Isaac, which means laughter. But that doesn't show real faith. I guess maybe it does in one way because it's so ridiculous that you almost have to laugh. But you get a sense of, "Mm, we're not fully buying in yet. But I think what God does in our lives is he sees the journey. He sees the destination. He sees the the walk of faith. And that's why you can say about Abraham and Sarah, you know, they didn't weaken in their faith. They followed in faith. Here's what that means for us is we're going to fall. There's going to be times where we simply don't trust God. And it doesn't matter if you've known Him for 30, 40, 50 years, or if you're a new believer, there's going to be times where we fall on our face, okay? That's the story. But by God's grace, we get back up and we trust Him and we learn and we grow. That's wobbly legged faith. It grows, it works, it's not always pretty, there's falling down. But in faith, by God's grace, we can trust him and move forward. Another thing is genuine faith is strengthened when we have to wait on God's promises. Wait. Oh, I hate that, you know, hate that word, right? We all do at some level. Abraham, you're the exalted, Abram, your exalted father. Abraham, you're the, you're the father of many nations. Can you imagine? Nothing is happening here, Lord. What's going on? Where's that promise that you made 25 years ago? There was that waiting, but in that waiting, it's just like us, there's strengthening that happens. There's learning to, okay, trust. Thirdly, genuine faith is directly proportionate to our knowledge of God. How big is your God? Why did Abraham believe that God, why did Abraham put his son up on a altar, first of all? Okay, well, God told him to, yes. But we know the rest of the story is because he believed God could raise him back to life. That's a big God. I think sometimes our God is very small and manageable, and I'm just as guilty as anyone of that, when in reality our God is the God of the universe. And like Paul says, you know, he's the one who raises the dead back to life. He's the one who created everything from nothing. That's a God I can trust in. That's an amazing God.